you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Tonight we tread upon familiar territory as we come in our series on the life of Moses to the Ten Commandments. However, our focus tonight will not be upon the law. We'll have to save that series for another time. Rather, tonight what I want to focus on is the surrounding context of the giving of the law in chapters 19 and 20. And from that context, I believe we learn a lot about the character of God and his will for his people. And along the way, I hope we can also pick up some lessons on leadership from Moses and from the ultimate leadership of God's people from God himself. Now, up to this point in our series with Escape from Egypt, Moses and the Israelites have faced several crises. First was the obstinacy of Pharaoh. Then came the plagues, the Red Sea, the lack of water in the desert, the lack of food, a military attack. But now, on this occasion, the people will face their greatest crisis yet, the holiness of God on Mount Sinai. God comes to his people in the midst of a storm, in a terrifying manifestation of his power and might. And yet, in the midst of that storm, we find a place of calm where one man may enter upon one condition. And through him, the people might enjoy the blessed peace of God. I invite you to follow along as I read chapter 19 and just a few portions of chapter 20. Chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes, and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. 
After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, well, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now skip over to verses 18 through 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, you revealed yourself in holy splendor on Mount Sinai many millennia ago to a people trembling in fear. We praise you because you are holy. You are righteous in all that you do. And we thank you for giving us your law to teach us how holy and righteous you are. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have an advocate, that we have a sacrifice of atonement, and we thank you that in Christ we can draw near. Teach us as we draw near to you in this hour. Speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night of August 18th, 1983... The Texas coast was struck by the worst hurricane in over 20 years. Hurricane Alicia came in, venting 115 mile per hour winds, unleashed 23 tornadoes along the Texas coast, and left in its wake almost 10 inches of rain, $2.5 billion of damage, and 21 deaths. I remember waking up that morning in the midst of the storm and joining my father downstairs as we hovered around a small battery-operated television. With a power outage, it was our lone source of access to the outside world. And there we sat in our home, the rain pouring out outside, 
the winds howling, the house creaking, the trees swaying and bending, the branches coming down, crashing. And then in just a matter of minutes, the storm stopped. The wind and the rains ceased. The sun came out. The eye of the hurricane was passing right over our area, just a few miles in diameter. Well, my quick-thinking father jumped in the car, got it started. I tagged along with him, and we went up the front of the neighborhood, swerving around fallen branches and trees, and found a gas station that remarkably was open. We grabbed a couple bags of ice, a few more gallons of water, and headed back home. No sooner had we entered the house... And the storm picked up again, with gale force winds breathing down its fury. Even the mighty hurricane, the most terrible storm, has a place of calm at the center. Likewise, the holy wrath of God has a place of calm, a place of peace, where one may enter, Upon one condition. In our text we see that God speaks to his people from out of the storm. And the people understandably stand back out of fear. And I believe that like them we are afraid. We are afraid to get too close to God because he is holy. But as their leader Moses had no choice. He had to enter into the storm. And the question we ask is, how was it that Moses was not harmed? Was it because of his own righteousness? No. Moses looked forward to the same hope that is ours on this side of the cross. You see, Jesus Christ is the eye of the hurricane. Only in Christ do we have the calm within the storm. I'd like us to learn together tonight a lesson I believe that Moses learned from the storm. That first, God is personal, that he is holy, and that he is redeemer. And that because of these, we may draw near to God. Our text tells us that it had been a mere three months since the people had left Egypt. And in that packed, dense three months, they had experienced God's presence in powerful and profound ways. But none of them could have possibly prepared them for this encounter upon the mountain. We learn here that Israel camps out in the desert while Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. God has fulfilled his promise to Moses by bringing them back to the very place that he first met with him in Sinai. Our text informs us that no less than three times does Moses trek up the mountain to meet with God and climb back down the mountain to relate to the people. Now, it's not that Moses is just a great mountain climber. He is a mediator who represents the people to God and God back to the people. Notice that God calls Moses from out of the mountain. In his first encounter with God... First counter, Moses and God. God spoke out of a burning thorn bush, perhaps communicating the meekness of God, 
His humiliation, condescending to the weakness of man, coming to bear the people's burdens. But now God speaks out of a mighty mountain to communicate his power and his majesty to his people. In verse 4, God begins to instruct Moses to present his case to Israel. God intends to enter into a covenant with his people, a binding relationship. And notice how he initiates this relationship with reminders of his mighty works of power to deliver them. He had destroyed the greatest empire that world history had known up to that time. God had come near to carry his people like a parent does a child. And in the arms of the Lord, they had soared on the wings of eagles. But God's mission was not merely justice and honor. His goal, verse 4 tells us, was to bring the people to himself. Many old westerns and modern superhero films present the self-sacrificing hero who marches into town, brings law, order, and justice in order to set an oppressed people free. But then the hero rides off into the sunset alone. Glory and honor are enough, even if his identity remains anonymous. But glory and honor are not enough for God. Nor does God want to be anonymous. God wants relationship. God wants to make himself known. He has not come to save his people and then leave them alone and ride off into the sunset. No, God seeks after personal intimacy with his people. He redeems us to restore fellowship between us and reveal his glorious self to a lost and needy world. Having revealed his intent to Moses... God begins to present the conditions of the relationship. Oftentimes, people will remark how God loves us unconditionally. However, I would argue biblically that the relationship with God does have conditions. The initiation of the relationship is conditioned upon faith. Obedience and repentance are conditions of maintaining the harmony of the relationship. But I would also concede that God's grace is better than unconditional. It's ultra-conditional. God's grace is not sappy. It is not easily bought. No, it costs God something very dear. But God's conditions are not ultimatums. He is not an angry father telling a rebellious teenager to obey or else. Rather, his conditions are redemptive. They dignify us. They restore us. God in them opens up himself to us, to invite us to himself, but warns us of the dangers of disobedience and unbelief. Notice in verse 5 the tenderness of the words. God is wooing his people, calling them his treasured possession. Like a man who pursues a young woman, captivated by her beauty. God seeks to bind himself to a people who will become his bride. Like a man forsaking all other loves, God rejects all the other nations in order to have Israel as his precious possession. He cherishes her. He lavishes her with praise, pouring out gifts upon her. 
some cynics have questioned whether God reveals a sign of possessiveness or arrogance in his statements here. But I would argue no. God's jealousy is a holy jealousy. Because God's jealous for his own glory. Because there is no greater good to be pursued than his own glory. What woman would not endear herself to her husband who would speak of her as belonging to him? That she is his and is no other's. We all desire to be the possession of one who is completely devoted to us. God seeks our good and his glory at the same time. And then in verse 6, the terms shift from matrimony to a grand vision of God's purpose with his people. He unveils his mission to make his people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As far back as Abraham, it was God's intent with his people that through them all nations on earth would be blessed. He would raise up the seed of Jacob to provide a solution to the problem of the nations. The nations needed to see peculiar people who were set apart, living according to God's law, holy lives. It was Israel's privilege to be ambassadors for God, to declare the praises of their holy God to a dark and chaotic world. The Old Testament, <clears throat> an Old Testament event that illustrates this better than any other is when the Queen of Sheba comes to the court of Solomon and marvels over the splendor of his court and the wisdom of the words flowing from his mouth. Unfortunately, Israel, like Solomon, will tarnish that vision. They will fail in their mission by trading away God for the idols of nations. God desired holiness of his people, but because of their backsliding, had to reprimand them, sending them off into exile, dispersing them among the nations. Friend, do you understand your role as a Christian, as a personal and missional calling of the Lord? You did not call him. He called you. He pursued you and he wooed you. He gave you a new name, a new purpose and mission in life. Peter echoes these words from chapter 19. In his first epistle, chapter 2, when he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Receive mercy. Those words written to first century Christians are just as true today, two millennia later. And so we ask, what is your mission? How are you declaring the praises of your glorious King? Beyond the formal worship service at Westminster. How are you declaring his praises in the workplace? In your neighborhood? In your relationships? Is God's grace and God's redemption having its way with you? To the extent that Peter will go on and write in chapter 2, that we are called to live in a peculiar way, to live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. 
In verse 9 and following, we begin to see a more clear picture of God's holiness. God reveals to Moses that he will come down upon the mountain, veiling himself in a cloud. Not because he's shy, not because he's protecting himself, but to protect the people. Because they would be crushed under the weight of his glory. God desired to speak with his people as he once spoke to Adam. He desires for them to hear his voice. And God's holiness is further declared in verses 10 through 12. When he calls upon Moses to consecrate the people, to set them apart for worship. It will require three days of preparation. The people will be invited to gaze upon the glory of God. And yet, they must respect the boundaries that God has established. Sinful man has limits to how he may approach a holy God. None of them must go up to the mountain upon penalty of death. Only God's chosen servant may go up. Centuries later, David will ask in Psalm 24, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. It's possible that David was reflecting upon Moses' experience on the mountain as he coined this poem. But Moses' mediation and David's meditation are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who beginning upon the Mount of Olives made his descent to the Valley of Humiliation and then ascended up to Mount Calvary. He alone who was worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, and to stand in the holy presence of God. Jesus alone entered into that holy place to make a final sacrificial atonement, appeasing the wrath of God and reconciling him to a sinful, rebellious people. The New Testament gives us further perspective on this encounter upon the mountain. Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following write, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ's death has opened up for us a new and living way by which we may draw near to God. We have the freedom to approach the Lord in his holy place. He requires no animal sacrifices. We need no more fences and barriers to protect us. They are all torn down. We are shielded from the holy wrath of God. We may approach him without fear, without shame. He is our Heavenly Father. And we are his well-loved, adopted sons and daughters 
through the work of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. But to appreciate the privileges we have under the new covenant. I like us to observe a little bit more what happened on that mountain. Because in verses 16 and following, God does appear with holy terror. The people see flashes of lightning. They hear the clapping of thunder. And God speaks to them out of the storm. God had spoken to Elijah out of a tornado. God spoke loud and clear at the death of his son when he sent an earthquake. The earth melts like wax at the presence of the Lord. God's holy might and power trumps anything we experience of the storms of this life. In the spring of 83, the same year as Hurricane Alicia, Houston was also struck in that spring by another massive storm that actually caused more damage, at least in our area, than the hurricane would later that August. Meteorologists called it a superstorm. It rained upon us golf ball-sized hail. It unleashed dozens of tornadoes in a single night. I remember lying in my bed that night, hearing the winds howling like the sound of a Mack truck going top speed down our street. In the morning when I awoke, there was no light coming, out of, out, coming through my window. And I soon learned the reason when we discovered that a large oak tree had fallen over in our yard and the branches covered the front of the house. What was even more remarkable was how the tree was felled. A large pine tree from the neighbor's yard had snapped near the base. It had been picked up and carried into our yard and swung like a baseball bat to knock over my favorite climbing tree. We would learn also that a tornado had bounced over our neighborhood. A neighbor's garage behind us was picked up and moved a good foot off of its foundation. We were spared destruction. God's grace was with us, a home that was a safe place, that provided a calm within the storm. Mankind has learned how to build shelters to protect us from the elements. We've invented all kinds of medicines to preserve life, to protect ourselves from disease. We've come up with all kinds of weapons to protect ourselves from our enemies. We, in many ways, have rights to boast in our great power over nature. And yet we all know too well that nature catches up with us, that the storms of life are great, and that we cannot escape them unto death. How much less can we resist the power of God? We must submit to the reality that God is holy, that he is almighty and all-powerful. We cannot hide from him. We cannot run. The pages of Scripture that record the coming last day of judgment, tell of men asking for the rocks to fall upon them, that they may somehow hide from the holy majesty of God. And yet nothing in all of creation will shield them from God's wrath. But you and I, friend, if we are in Christ, we are shielded from that wrath. We have protection upon the day of judgment. We have a safe place.
in the presence of Christ. In verses 17 and following, it seems that Moses will introduce the people to their God, almost like an arranged marriage. The people have heard of this God, and now they come to meet him. Yeah, the text tells us the people were terrified of the fire, the smoke, and the lightning. The whole mountain was just trembling under the weight of God's glory. And so in verses 19 and following, Moses alone goes up the mountain and enters into the storm. While the people stay back in terror, Moses braves the holy tempest. Moses will face his greatest fears. And then he will hear the word of God. He will be rewarded, being given the revelation of the Ten Commandments, the very pillars of life and civilization. And he will gain a glimpse of the righteous and gracious character of God. How much do you desire to hear the voice of God? I believe that we dread God's voice because it turns our life upside down. It turns it inside out like a tornado causing devastation in its path. When God gets a hold of us, it turns our life in a new direction. And we are never the same again. The words of man we can easily dismiss as mere opinions. But the word of God speaks truth that cannot be denied. Let me invite you tonight to slow down. To listen to the voice of God. To hear him speaking to you in the midst of the storm. What storms are raging about you at this season of life? The storms of decisions. The storms of great fears, of future plans. The storms of ailments, of want, of need, of uncertainty, of brokenness, of dread. Do not curse the storm. Enter into the storm. Be quiet and listen for the voice of God. Do not waste your storm, but seize it. You might enter into God's presence and realize that he is not harming you, but God is testing you to consecrate you for further service. For when we meet with God upon the mountain, we enter back into the valley a new person with renewed strength for the journey ahead. I'd like, in closing, to consider the law I did not read the Ten Commandments. I only read the preface to it in verse 2. I want to read it again. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What I want you to notice is that the law is given in context of God's redemptive act to rescue his people out of slavery. God is not imposing a burdensome, legalistic set of rules upon a victimized people. He is their Redeemer. He has pledged himself in love to them. He is entering into relationship with them and giving them a loving set of expectations. They might might know how to live in fellowship with the living God. Relationship precedes law. Just as a parent's household's, a parent's household's rules do not define the relationship between parent and child. Rather, the relationship provides the context for the rules. 
So it is that the law of God is not the precondition for relationship. Law and obedience to the law do not make us God's people. Rather, God makes us his people by his redemption, by his choosing us, by delivering us. And he gives us his law that we might know him, that we might learn to follow him. I believe too many believers get stuck on the performance treadmill. Having been initially saved by grace, they choose to go on and sweat it out for the rest of their Christian life, seeking to perform, trying to somehow maintain God's acceptance, fearing his rejection by their disobedience. Friend, you do not have to perform for God. Rather, you are free to come to him in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. You are no longer under wrath. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the King, and you are called to live like one by walking in loving trust in your Heavenly Father. But notice in verse 18 and following, how just after hearing the Ten Commandments, the people have their eyes fixated upon the lightning and the storm. They prefer to be spectators. They don't want to participate. And so they deny themselves the joy and the intimacy of being in God's presence. They prefer Moses to go talk for them. I believe this is somewhat similar to the Roman Catholic Church's system of the saints, through whom the lay people can petition God through a former saint. A friend of mine described it this way, of a son asking mom to go get something he wants from dad. That's not intimacy. That's manipulation. We do not need the saints to mediate for us with God. We have one mediator, Jesus Christ, through whom we may approach the throne of grace with perfect confidence. And so, Moses tries to impart that confidence to the people in verse 20, telling them not to be afraid. God is merely testing them that they might truly learn to fear him and avoid sin. Are you struggling with sin? Join the club. And remember that you do not need a better life management skills. You do not have a set of sin management skills. Rather, you need the fear of the Lord. Learn the habit of practicing the presence of God. Ask him to show you his holiness. Plead, as Moses would later, for God to show you his glory. For it's only as we are captivated by the loveliness of God in Christ that that our affections of the things of the world will begin to wither away. And in the final scene, verse 21, we see that Moses enters into the thick darkness. While the people remain upon the sidelines, Moses enters the game. He will go 40 days without food and water, and yet be fed with the sweet fellowship of God. Later on in chapter 24, he'll be joined by dozens of elders who will eat and drink in the presence of God. They will see God and live. Are you robbing yourself of the joy and their privilege of being intimate with God? Are you perhaps using every religious means imaginable other than that which can keep you vitally connected 
with God. Jesus Christ says, abide with me. He is the eye of the hurricane. Through him, we climb the mountain. You must fight through the storm to find that center piece of calm where you may rest in Christ. Brave into that dark and mysterious place of holy dread. Face your fears. And listen to the voice of God who will expose to you the awfulness of your sin and yet fill you with the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. And there upon the mountain you will gain vision of the will of God that is bigger than yourself and more grand and glorious than all of the other storms of life. During the summer of 1996, I was on a mission project in South Carolina with Campus Crusade for Christ with 60 other college students, one of whom would become my wife. And that summer, late in the season, at least the summer season, the East Coast was struck by Hurricane Bertha. Now, Bertha was a bit modest, a pale shadow of Hurricane Alicia, and I enjoyed telling the novices in our project who had never been through a hurricane, uh, boasting about how storms in Texas are a lot bigger. But because we were dwelling temporarily on the shore, we did have to evacuate to the mainland. And while we were there in the shelter, we chose to try to minister to the people in the shelter. And so we gathered a crowd around the auditorium. We sang our songs. We told our testimonies. We preached the word. We did vacation Bible school with the children. But I had to wonder how many of those people would seriously consider the gospel after the storm had withered away and they returned to their homes and get on with life. Friend, don't just get through the storm until it's over. Fight through to that place where you can meet with God. See, I believe that many of the Israelites did not take the Sinai experience to heart. They were just glad that it was over. When the storm rages, people pay attention to the message of God. But when it is gone, they quickly resort to old ways, not being forced to reckon with the Almighty. Do not curse the storms. God is drawing you to himself. My friend, get off the sideline. Get into the game. Join Moses upon the mountain. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ up the pathway to the cross. Enter that dreadful place of God's holy presence. Your life will never be the same. And it is all for good. Because the Holy Spirit will equip you with every perfect work ordained for you in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we